Before we jump back in the book of Jude, let me remind you that next Sunday is our annual regroup. And if you're newer to Grace or maybe you just have a bad memory, regroup is the time where we regroup around K groups, where we jump back into community together. We've taken a couple month break from that and we form up into groups of 12 to 15, approximately some bigger, some smaller. And during the week, we get together and we really spend time around God's Word, caring for one another. And it's really, K-Groups is the way that our church organizes care and help for one another. And so even in a size church, I know if you're from a bigger city, you know, Grace is a small church. If you're from Bainbridge, Grace may be considered a big church, uh, but it's big enough regardless to, you can't care for everyone in this room um, the way that you should. And so K-Groups is an opportunity for us to do that in a manageable way, to really be able to talk and care and love one another. And so if you're not in a K-group, a small group, I hope you'll get involved in one. Uh, what we'll do next Sunday, after, immediately after the service, we will quickly clear out uh, the place and set up round tables and square rectangular tables, and, and we'll serve a meal in here together, and each little K-group community will be around in this room And so if you're not part of a group, you can just jump in and join anyone that you would like to. There will be 10 different groups in this room, meeting and eating. And so you can just jump in and be part of that. Uh, Also, uh, leaders, I encourage you to look around. If you see somebody, uh, make a beeline for them after the service and invite them to be part of your lunch next week. And so that's going to be immediately after the service next week. And it's uh, real um, low-key as far as no real agenda other than getting together for the meal and talk a little bit about what K-Group is and when they'll be meeting and that kind of thing. So I hope you'll be a part of it. So we're back in the book of Jude and just one chapter. So Jude, we're going to be verses 1 through 4 today. Jude writes, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray and we'll look at these four verses. Father God, we thank you for your word that gives us truth and life. God, we thank you for the fact that it tells us and points us to Jesus Christ, crucified and risen again for our salvation. Thank you for the baptisms today, John Austin and Dustin, and just how they have made that decision to follow you in their hearts, God, that you've called them. And God, we thank you that they responded to that call and they put their faith in you. And thank you for that demonstration of their faith today, God, through their baptism. And God, I pray for anyone in here who does not know you, God, today might be the day of salvation. Encourage all of us, God, to walk uh, in your truth today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. They say that most people can read sentences even if the words are jumbled up. So even if the words are twisted and jumbled, 
we can still, most people can quickly make sense of what's being said by the fact that the letters, a lot of times we just kind of see the word in context. And so look at this example here, and we won't spend a lot of time on it, but just look at it really quickly and see if that makes sense to you whatsoever. And if you can kind of start to, in your brain, put together those words. I'll give you a a few seconds here to try that. And I'm not going to tell you the answer because if you can't figure it out, you have to go to the app. All right. It's on the app and I need you guys to get the app, download the app, have the app, follow along in the app. It's a great tool for you to follow along in the sermons, but the answer is there in the app if you can't figure it out. But I bet most of you can figure out there's one word that's kind of tough, but most of them are pretty self-explanatory. So as you're kind of thinking about that, also notice in that paragraph, there's a lot of little red lines underneath each one of those words. I have a program on my computer. It's called Grammarly, and Grammarly tells me when words are spelled wrong and when sentences could be put together better. And so it says to me, it says, hey, something is wrong here. So as I typed out these words, Grammarly did not like it. It got really upset with me, and it kept saying, something's messed up. Something's wrong here, right? And this is a good example of how false teachers work. And you can, go, you can go off the screen if you want, Drew, uh, because everybody's just going to be focused on that. All right, all right, there you go. Back to me. Um, and, and so it, that's kind of how false teachers work. They give some semblance of truth. They give things that make kind of sense. You look at it and you're like, oh, yeah, I see where they're coming from. Oftentimes it's disguised as new or fresh or something that's unique or you haven't looked at this this way before. And there's something inside of the believer that says, like Grammarly, it says, hold on a second, something's not right here, right? And that's the Holy Spirit within the believer's life who uses the truth of God, even though the false teacher might say, look, look at the word, look, see, that's what it says. And you're like, well, it kind of looks twisted to me. It kind of looks like something's off to me. That's the Holy Spirit allowing you to see and discern truth. And Satan's tactic is from the beginning very much the same. He likes to take and twist the truth. He twists the truth for Adam and Eve. He tried to tempt Jesus by tempting the truth, and it's still his tactic today, and it was a tactic during the time of Jude. Twisted truth. But believers, we have this internal checker that says something's wrong here, and it drives us to Scripture and drives us to look and see what the real truth is in the matter. So the Holy Spirit guides us into truth, by pointing us to Jesus, the one who is the truth. We saw that clearly throughout John. Jesus said, I'm the way, I'm the truth. And so the Holy Spirit drives us to the person of Christ, the work of Christ, the gospel of Christ, so we can then understand what his truth is. And God uses his word that centers on Jesus and centers on the gospel to expose those lies of Satan. So the context today in Jude is that Jude is warning against false teachers in the church who are twisting the truth. Now, what's interesting about this passage is it doesn't seem like they're flat out denying Jesus or even his authority, but they're taking things and they're twisting it, and a lot of it has to do with their way of life, the way that they're living. So let's look at verse 1, recap 1 and 2 real quick. We looked at that last week, and then jump into 3 and 4. So Jude identified himself as the servant of Jesus Christ, and the brother of James. And if you were here last week, or you may know this already, James is the half-brother of Jesus. So therefore, 
Jude is the half-brother of Jesus as well. But Jude doesn't say, hey guys, I'm the half-brother of Jesus, better listen to me. He's very humble. He says, a servant of Jesus. And what's interesting is I pointed out last week that Jude did not believe that his half-brother Jesus was the Messiah. He did not believe and put his faith in Jesus until after the resurrection. Until after the resurrection, then he came to Christ, became a leader in the church, writes the book we're studying today, and the same is true for James as well. Becomes a, a, a pillar of the church in Jerusalem, James does. And so Jesus' resurrection changes everything because they realize, even though I'm sure they recognized Jesus and how amazing he was as they grew up in the same household together, the fact is making the leap from your brother is a really good person to he's the Messiah is a pretty big leap, right? But when Jesus rose from the dead, this was absolute definitive proof that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. And so if you're a skeptic in here, if you're somebody who's like, oh, you know, just have a hard time accepting Christianity and the claims of Christianity, look no f- further than the change that was made even within the own, own, Jesus' own family unit. What happened, what occurred, because something truly happened. Jesus rose from the dead, and he appeared to his disciples and to his followers and to his family on multiple occasions, and he was alive on this earth after he was put to death by the Romans. And so Jesus' resurrection proved it and, and sealed the deal for Jude. And so now, also, Jude, when he writes, he says, I'm writing to those who are called... We just sang about that a minute ago, called, beloved, and God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. And you know what that says to us? That says that this book of Jude is written for the purpose of Christians in the church, like those who are inside the church concerning matters have to do with the church, because these people are called by God. And you remember last week I said that this calling, while a general calling always goes out for the gospel, there's a special work that happens inside those who respond to the gospel. This miracle happens where they're moved from spiritual death to spiritual life. Their eyes are open to the truth of the glorious gospel, and they respond to it. And then not only does he say, are we called and are we not lo- and, and kept, but he says, we're also, we're loved, we're beloved. And that's a really important word, and we're going to see that again in a second. But he's writing to the church, and he's telling them that they're loved and they're kept for Jesus Christ. Loved and kept for Jesus Christ. And it makes me think of verses like Romans 8, 39, where Paul wrote, Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, so many people who are professing believers, they think that some way they can sin and God's angry at them and God... It, it just doesn't like them, and God's not going to accept them, and they have to do repentance and, 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 and beg God for forgiveness. But the thing is, in Christ, we're forgiven of our sins. Past, present, and future. Declared righteous is the, the word that J- Paul uses throughout Scripture, justified. We're justified in Christ. And maybe a, a good way to remember that is just as if I've never sinned justified, just as if I've never sinned, that God declares you righteous because of Jesus. And Jude emphasizes this in verse 3. He starts out with his beloved term again because he wants them to know that they're loved and beloved in Christ. This position is secure. God's love is not out of reach. No matter what they go through, no matter what their emotions might be telling them at the moment, no matter how much you feel discouraged or unloved, Scripture tells us, and by faith we believe it, that we, as those who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, 
are loved by God and nothing can separate us from the love of God. In fact, Paul goes so far in Romans 5, 5 to say that God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. And so, believer, as you walk around and live your life, that you know that the Holy Spirit is in you. God has poured out his love into your hearts. And as you live your life, that you live in that security to know that if you mess up tomorrow or you sin a week from now, that doesn't, that doesn't change God's perspective of you. You're secure in Christ. And it's out of that that we can live a life that's bold and courageous, full of purpose and full of grace. I, I know a lady who has a, a very serious terminal illness, and she says she's a believer, but she says that what's going on in her life is God paying her back for the way that she lived her life before Christ. Well, I'm sorry, but that's terrible and wrong thinking according to Scripture. God isn't paying her back. He isn't punishing her. Jesus took the punishment that you and I deserved on the cross. And God's punishment was settled through Jesus. Jesus took our punishment and gave us, not only did he take the punishment, but he gave us his righteousness. And so we are righteous. And that's why we can sing, I'm blessed, I'm called. We, we can sing these truths that I'm anointed because in Christ, God is giving us, given us everything we need, 2 Peter 1 says, for life and godliness. He's given it all to us. We don't need more Jesus. We just need to allow him to control us more. We can't get more of him. We just need to uh, submit ourselves more to his leading. His Holy Spirit is in our life, and he's controlling us. And so God isn't punishing his children for his sins, our sins. He's already done that. He's punished Jesus. And when we place our faith in Jesus, it's a done deal. Listen to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18 and 19. Paul writes, And may you have the power to understand. Get that. I want you to have the power to understand what I'm about to say. As all God's people should, how wide and how long and how high and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ that it is too great to fully, although it's too great to fully understand. Then you will be able to be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. That's amazing what, what Paul is telling us there in that verse. He's saying that we need to mature in our thinking, grow up in our faith, so we can understand the inexhaustible love of Jesus Christ that he's poured out on us. And so this awareness of God's love and, and, and this power that we have to live by when we recognize that we're secure in him, that he's given us his purpose in life. He's given us his calling in life. And no matter what you're going through at this moment, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, God has an incredible purpose and plan for you, for your life, to do something for his kingdom and his glory. Now, it may not look like my life. It may not look like Charles Whitaker's life, who was standing here, but God has a specific purpose for you. And the people that you intersect with and the people that you deal with and talk to at work, at home, uh, throughout this, the community, God is putting people in your life. And in fact, Scripture tells us he prepares ahead of time the good works for us to do. He's given us these divine intersections with people in our community, and we walk through those. I heard one preacher say, like, uh, like a bowling ball going through bowling pins, and we're just these good things. We're just knocking into them, these opportunities all day long that God has given us these purposes because we're secure in his love, and we don't have to walk around questioning, does God love me? Or if God loved me, why would this have to happen? Or why would this bad thing happen? 
We know that God has a plan, and sometimes we don't fully understand it. And being blessed definitely doesn't mean that God's just going to shower you with money and health and wealth. God has given you his life, and that's why we're blessed. He's given us a purpose, that's why we're blessed. And he's given us this incredible mission, every single one of us, to live for. And so we can't be separated from it. And some of you think that you can be separated from the love of Christ, but you cannot be separated by the authority of Scripture. And so Jude wants them to be very clear, beloved. You're, you're loved, you're kept, you're called in Christ. It's a done deal. But now he warns them, and I think one of the best ways to go about in the church combating false teaching and dealing with those who may be causing and stirring up problems within a church is because we understand our position in Christ, and out of that, we're able to securely and confidently do what God has called us to do. Look at verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So Jude tells the church to contend for the faith. So you beloved people, you people who are loved by God, here's what I need you to do. I need you to contend for the faith, all right? Contend is a word that is a word that shows struggle. I mean, it was used in the Olympic Games during Paul's time in the Greek of a wrestling match, of, of two guys in there with intense effort warring against one, one another. And that's the word that, Paul, that Jude, I'm sorry, uses. He says to contend for the faith, all right? Many of us have seen contending done very, very poorly, right? You've seen contending in the culture done poorly. You've seen the guy who's out yelling and screaming at people to turn or burn. We were in Chattanooga uh, a few months back and walking across the bridge there that goes across, I think, the Tennessee River, and, and there's a guy with a big sign, and he's got a megaphone, and he's yelling at people. And I, like, I literally like, get close to him enough to like, try to make eye contact. I wanted to you know, kind of just interact and like, hey, man, yeah. And, and he wouldn't even look at me. He wouldn't even make eye contact with me. He was like a robot. I, this is what i got to do, all right? And, and I'm doing it, and there's no emotion. There's no affection. There's no love. It's just totally disconnected from the gospel of Christ. He's just saying the words. That's bad contending. And inside the church, many people have been hurt by just bitterness, anger, like uh, just hurtful things that have been done in the name of Christ inside the church. And unfortunately, so many of the problems that come out in the church are, are such trivial things. Rather, rarely is it like over doctrinal issues or big, important things. It's very small things. And maybe you just think about some of the problems that you've had in churches throughout your life and kind of what the root of that was. Rarely was it a doctrinal issue. It was usually something very, very small. And so we're going to see... In the future, down the road here a few weeks, James, or I'm sorry, Jude gets to some very specifics on this, but today we're kind of doing more of a high-level overview of what he's saying here, and then we'll jump into specifics. So verse 3, he says, I found it necessary. So Jude was excited to write to them. I'm going to write to you about our common salvation. Like, I'm excited to write about some things God's doing in our lives, but he says, i got to change course because I've learned about something serious that's happening inside your church and it has to be immediately addressed because I need you to contend for this faith. I need you to fight and, and struggle for this faith. And I need you to be aware that this is going on in your congregation. And I think uh, Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, preacher of the past, nails it when he says, Satan knows right well that one devil in the church can do far more than a thousand devils outside her bounds. And that's so true. When you have a false teacher or somebody who's spreading lies in the church, 
it can very much wreak havoc on a congregation, upon a people. And so Jude says, I need you to contend for the faith, all right? Very important term there. Contend, wrestle, fight for the faith. The faith is the body of recognized truth. It cannot be changed. It's not negotiable. It's, this is truth. This is, is the body of truth that's been established, given from Jesus to the apostles, now to the church, and this cannot be changed. I need you to contend for that truth. And Jude was written some 50 years after Jesus' resurrection, and that's important to recognize because a lot of people who are skeptics of Christianity, they say, you know, hey, you know, the Bible was kind of a work in progress, and they didn't really understand, you know, these truths, and this was later on that doctrine was created. Some would even argue, like, the Council of Nicaea and Constantine and the Roman Empire, and he's the one that really created Christianity later on down the road. And Judah's writing in the first century, and he's saying, this body of truth has already been established. You already have this. Others will look and say, well, Paul was the creator of Christianity. I was watching an atheist, actually, a guy who's a religious professor at University of North Carolina this past week, and he said, he said, there's no way that Paul could have created Christianity because Paul was fighting against Christians, right? And so there was already Christians that he was trying to persecute before he, on the road to Damascus, came to Christ. And so clearly Paul didn't create Christianity Constantine didn't create Christianity. Jesus founded Christianity, and Jesus took the truth, and he passed it on to his disciples, who then in turn passed it on to faithful men. That's what Paul tells Timothy to do. He tells Timothy, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also, 2 Timothy 2.2. So this passing on of the truth. And at the close of Paul's life, he says, that he has fought the good fight, he has kept the faith, right? So the faith was established. He he has kept the faith. And so the faith has been established early on. This was not something that came about through a series of events and councils. The truth was established during the time of Jude. And the truth is that Jesus, he founded the Christianity. And then he says, look back at Jude chapter, verse 3. He says, it was delivered to the saints. So Jude reminds us that this body of truth has been delivered to us, to the saints, to the Christians that's been passed on by Jesus. And I think that's important that we don't miss this here. He doesn't say that it's been delivered to the elders or to the pastors. He said it's been delivered to the saints. And what that tells me is that there's no one who claims to be a follower of Christ who is not responsible to pass on the truth to the next generation, to another group of people to share. And that's one reason I love K-Groups is because it's an opportunity to pass that on. I don't know if you've uh, watched the Olympics the last, you know, 8, 12 years and seen some of the U.S. Uh, teams that they, we fielded in the 4 by 100 meters. But the United States, we have some of the fastest 100-meter guys around, right? We do. I mean, every year, if once, um, you know, there was Jamaica for a while, who was the favorite, but after Usain Bolt kind of faded away, I mean, the United States is always slated to be first or second. I mean, they, we have the best runners in the world, all right? But we've got a problem. If you follow sports very closely, the 4 by 100 the United States has tanked on this. I mean, have done terrible over the last uh, 10, 15 years. And the reason why... Strangely enough, they cannot pass the baton from one runner to the next. 
There's been countless races where there's been some glitch between these runners running around the track and you get to your pass-off zone and you go to hand out the baton to the next guy. Somebody drops it, they miss the, they go past the line where you're allowed to pass it or there's something that happens that they fail and they're disqualified from the race or they just don't do well in the race. And I, I think this is a great picture of what we're called to do. Every person in here, not just elders and pastors and deacons, Every person is called to pass on the faith to the next person. K-groups, again, great opportunity to do that. For you to benefit from other people sitting around in a circle, and we're talking about Scripture. Many groups do sermon follow-up questions. Some do other uh, things during their studies. But regardless of what they do, it's an opportunity for you to own your faith, to discuss your faith, to be guided in a conversation by somebody who uh, is a leader and elder of this church, a pastor of this church, who helps guide the conversation. But it's an opportunity for you to take the truth and really run with it on the ground, on the street level, for the things that you deal with each and every day. You can bring up, hey, I'm struggling in my, in my work with this situation or this person. And we relate it to the truth of Scripture and how you can better deal with that situation or that person as a result. There's so many practical gospel benefits for being in a group. And I want to just really, really highly stress that you need to be part of a community. You need to be part of a K-group. And I hope you'll join us next week. If you can't make it next week for regroup, you can still jump in. Back at the welcoming area, there will be a card that shows where all the groups are, their locations when they meet. You can grab one of those. You can go visit two or three and pick the ones that you want. But we need to be passing that baton off to the next person, the next generation, discipling other people. Parents, you better be passing that baton off to your children in a very wise and systematic way. Because you can, have, you can be a star. You could be the best theologian sprinter around, right? You can know your stuff. But if you just fall apart when it comes to passing it off to your kids, it's going to be bad news, right? It, it, there's going to be a problem. There's going to be a problem because you're resp- responsible to passing along the truth to the next generation. And so Jude tells them, I'm delivering this to you, delivered to the saints, to each and every person. Now let's pass it on. I'm delivering it to you, the truth. Verse 4, he says, here's the warning. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So verse 4 And the rest of the content of this letter is going to be this strong warning, and it's focused on the behavior of the Christians. And we'll talk, like like I said, more about that in future weeks. But look at what he says about these false teachers, that they're very subtle. They crept in, right? They don't walk in wearing a name tag saying, false teacher, false prophet. They don't identify themselves. Some of them, most of them, don't even ever raise to the level of being a quote-unquote official teacher. They're just a person who stirs up things within the church. And they start talking, and some Christians don't even recognize that they're spreading the lies. Kind of like the jumbled sentences, the twisted truth. You look at it, and you're like, yeah, I I can see that. It makes sense. Yeah, it takes a little work. Takes a little maneuvering, but yeah, I, I, I see where you're coming from. And, and they're, they're, they're tricked into believing because they're not mature in the faith. They haven't grown up in the faith. 
They're not listening to their leaders, and so they get taken in by these false teachers. And look how he describes these people. He says, they're ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. So ungodly people literally means, this term means without worship. So there's no fear of God. There's no reverence and respect for God. What's happening is God has become a means to an end for them, where God, I use God to get what I want. I heard a, a worship leader the other day for a church, said, she said, God's like a genie in the bottle to me, like Aladdin, right? And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's so wrong, right? I mean, so many people have that mindset. There's no reverence and fear of God, that God, you're the creator, that you're the sustainer of life, that you're over all of this, and you created me for your will, not the other way around where, like, you're to work for me, God. And, and, and people turn that around, and they want to use God and religion and even the church for their own personal prosperity. And they pervert God's grace and use it as an excuse to live in whatever way they want. And they call that grace, but that's not grace. Biblical grace means we've received forgiveness and we have the power to overcome sin, not permission to act on immorality. We have the, the power now through the Holy Spirit and through God's grace to have victory because he's put his, his spirit in our lives. He showered us with love and we can walk in that truth in grace. That's not an excuse. So many people, again, use God in that, in that capacity. They deny the authority of Jesus Christ. That's what Jude says in verse 4. They deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. They deny him. They deny his authority as master and Lord. It's the opposite of what Jude said back in verse 1. Jude described himself, not the brother of Jesus, but he says the servant of Jesus Christ, right? So false teachers, they're promoting this idea where they're the master and Jesus is the servant. And again, it's very subtle. It's very jumbled. People don't even recognize that it's been twisted. They've crept in. They're giving this. And people are going, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds great. Because we're all very selfish and self-centered at the heart, right? We all want what we want. And when we're not keeping our eyes upon Jesus, when we forget our position in Christ, we forget that we're fully loved and fully accepted by Jesus. We forget that that is where we find our joy. And that's where we find our, our great pleasure and delight. When we forget that, then it's easy to run after these, these allures of the flesh, the things of the world that seem to be giving us the satisfaction and the joy that we want. But any believer in here can tell you from personal experience, from life, that it never works out well, right? It never works out well to follow your own impulses and desires. But when we're aligned with Christ and we're following Christ, then we are able to delight in God's truth. And we allow the Holy Spirit to work through us. And in that, we find incredible purpose in life and joy in life. But it never goes well when we do, do it our way. So I want to encourage you to, to really remember your position in Christ and who you are in Christ and what Christ did for you in the gospel. And if you've been raised maybe in a, a religion or, or a denomination that was all about your efforts, your works, like if you got to do this stuff and do this list and punch out these things in order to be accepted by God, that is not the biblical gospel. It's not. The biblical gospel is Jesus did what you could not do. And he gave you what you could never earn or deserve, which is salvation. And it's all about putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and recognizing that he's Lord and I'm not. 
He's the creator, I'm the creation. And I humbly see that I have nothing in of myself to measure up and to earn God's favor. And so I cry out to God, God, save me, this poor sinner, save me. Give me your salvation. Give me your, your life, God, within me. And we respond to that call to the gospel. And then, as I said last week, then we don't all of a sudden, then it doesn't just all become on us to live the Christian life in a way that, that's all about us. Salvation's all about Jesus, but this life is all about us. It's still continuing to be a life by living by grace through faith in Christ. That I, I look at the promises of God, I know they're better than living for myself. I look at the way that God has commanded me to live the behavioral commands of Scripture, and, and, and then I see that God is my delight, I'm loved in Him, and I follow the Holy Spirit's leading as I live my life in each and every day. But apart from, and I said this, and I hope you, some of you did that exercise that I talked about last week, and a few of you did tell me, wow, you really were talking to me there, where it said, an inconsistent walk with Jesus, a consistent walk with Jesus, What's the result of that? An inconsistent walk is constantly you're discouraged, you feel like a failure, because you're putting all your focus on yourself. You put your eyes on Jesus, you focus upon him, you focus on what he's doing, what he has done, and then all of a sudden you don't get devastated by your failures and your sins. You realize that God has covered these in the blood of Christ and that I can move on and keep following him and keep my eyes on him because he's won the victory, not me. Finish with an illustration real quick. I was in Walmart a few days ago, and I was in the self-checkout line, and I was standing there, and I will, I will I'll admit right off the bat, this was prideful thinking, okay? So I'm just going to tell you right off, prideful thinking, but I smelled something, and I looked around, and I was like, man, I hate Walmart, and it smells so bad in here. And then there's like a family there, and there's like these kids, and like, kids, man, they, they, always, they always smell bad, you know? They don't take baths, they're out in the summer, and ugh, so, so disgusting. And I honestly was holding my breath and, and finished the checking out and got out of there, walking through the parking lot. It's like, wow, that smell's following me. It's, it's, it's falling behind me. And I got in the car, and I was like, it's in here too. Oh, it's so nasty. And I literally got out and looked at my shoes, and I wanted to see, like, did I step in something? And there was nothing there. And so I got in the car, closed the door, and I was like, I can't stand this. And I looked down, and there was this, like, black stuff on my shirt. And I went, and I was like, oh, my goodness. And it was my shirt the entire time. And I didn't even make it home. I stopped by the, my church office and went in and changed shirts and threw that thing in on the washing machine. It smelled terrible. It smelled awful. And I think so many people, believers, live their life that way, right? We live our lives, we're so focused on other people, other people's sins, other people's disgusting ways of living, that we don't focus on Christ and what he's done for us that he's forgiven us, that he's cleansed us. And our job is to live our lives for the glory of Jesus, realizing that he's made us clean and that as we see our sin, we acknowledge that sin and we understand that Jesus paid for that sin and we live our lives with a freedom and excitement and a passion and, and, and just we, we're in love with this life because God has given us this life. But when you begin to focus in on those around you and like, oh, it's so disgusting. This culture is so disgusting. Everybody's so disgusting, except for me and, and my group, right? Then all of a sudden we become prideful and, and we're ignorant of the, Satan's tactics. And he's working 
deception into your life. He's crept into your life and he's worked deception. And so our job, as I said last week, yes, you, to recognize that you need a savior, people need to recognize that sin has separated them from a holy God. But the call is for you and I to keep our eyes fully fixed on Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Even as we contend, wrestle for the gospel, we do it in perspective with gospel, love, knowing that what Christ has done for us and the humility that he brings into our lives because we didn't do anything to deserve this in the first place, right? And so we are humble in our disposition. We're winsome in our behavior to those who are on the outside and those who are on the inside as well because we're contending well. So our application, our head, Jesus is our authority. Jesus is our authority. We need to stay focused upon Jesus. And Jesus' authority is for our good. When we see Jesus and we allow him to have the rightful place in our heart, which is he's in charge and I'm not, we find that we experience good and joy in that moment. And then our hands application very simply is we take that and we don't just keep it for ourselves. We pass it on to the next generation, the next person. We pass it on in K-group. We pass it on at home with our families. We pass it on to our grandchildren. We pass on the truth of the gospel. We've been entrusted with it. False teachers creep in. We're aware Jesus is the authority. We keep our eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for the book of Jude and just how much punch this little book packs, God, just in these short verses, God. And we thank you for the truth of the gospel that we did nothing to deserve you, God. I pray for anyone here who's blinded by the deception of Satan, thinking that Their salvation is based upon their efforts, their works. God, help them to clearly hear, even at this moment, that your grace is free and you give it to us because it cost you so much on that cross. And we thank you that the resurrection proves that you were who you said you were and you are who you say you are and that you live and you intercede for us. And God, we can have victory in this life because you live in us. You poured your love out in our hearts and that the Holy Spirit lives and guides us. And God, I pray that today, anyone here who doesn't know you, today will be their day of salvation, to humble themselves and realize they must receive the gift of salvation. Pray for believers that you'll keep us aware of our mission, help us to be led by you and not be distracted by the flesh. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.